Good morning, church family. Uh, well, this morning we're continuing uh, in our study of the gospel through the gospel of Luke. Uh, and as we read, as you heard, we're in uh, continuing in chapter four. Um, so you, if you'd like to, you can turn there with us. Well, the year was 1925, and there was a man in Paris named Count Victor Lustig. Lustig had, had been born in Austria-Hungary and was very well educated. Uh, he, had, he spoke several languages. Uh, and then he had come to Paris with a mind for business. Um, and then in 1925, he, he took on the project of taking bids for the sale of the Eiffel Tower. And, what, and many, many Parisians felt the tower was an eyesore, uh, that it had long outlived its purpose uh, since its construction for the World's Fair uh, 30 years prior to that. And parts of the metal frame, it was said, had begun to rust, and so, um, so many were worried about that. And So Lustig, as a representative, a representative of the French government, held several meetings to interview companies uh, who would be interested in purchasing uh, the 7,000 tons of scrap metal once the tower was destroyed. And Lustig explained to the suitors that, uh, that this was quite an opportunity for them um, and that any gesture that their companies might be willing to make to incentivize him personally uh, would help to push their bid to the top of the heap. And, and sure enough, uh, the winning suitor uh, paid Lustig $70,000 to help ensure that their bid was the winning one. But the deal hit a snag. You see, the problem was Count Lustig was not in charge of the Eiffel Tower at all. <laughs> No one had asked him to sell it. He had simply read in the news that there was some minor rust problems. And as Lustig traveled back to Austria-Hungary, $70,000 richer, a French scrap metal company had been had. And they were left not holding the bag anymore. Uh, you see, real authority matters. You can promise anything you want. But unless you have the authority to deliver, you're a fraud, right? Last week, as Jesus stepped into the ministry limelight, he made some pretty audacious claims about himself. But anyone can say crazy things about themselves. Was Jesus the real deal? Did he have the authority to back up what he was claiming? As we see in the beginning of Christ's ministry in Galilee, um, and as we look to his, his, his coming out and beginning to minister, I want us to see four things about the authority of Jesus. Number one, we will see the content of his authority. Number two, the realm of his authority. Number three, the extent of his authority. And number four, the purpose of his authority. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you that you are with us. And we thank you uh, that you are uh, in your kindness, that you would speak to us through your word, that you, would, uh, that you would allow us to have ears that would hear, to have hearts that would be softened to. So, uh, so Father, would you do that again today? Would you, would you help us to hear? Uh, would you help us to see you for who you are? Would we not be uh, so... Uh, distraught about 
uh, how, how things are in our life or distracted by what things are coming in our life, but rather uh, would, would you point us to what is true in the universe? And would you, would you draw us by your grace as the loving father that you are, would you draw us to the son? And so would you do this today? We ask it uh, by your spirit in Christ's name, amen. Well, number one, uh, the content of his authority. We see beginning in verse 31, uh, then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. So Jesus has left his hometown of Nazareth, and Luke tells us he's going down to Capernaum, which if you look at a map is, by our standards, not down. It's actually up. It's northwest. Uh, But he's going down in elevation. He's heading down toward the sea, toward the Sea of Galilee, uh, literally going down. Uh, Capernaum is going to become a a home base of sorts uh, for the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Uh, We even learn in this chapter that this is where Simon Peter's uh, family lives. And so so Jesus rolls into town, he begins to teach, and what do we read about his teaching in verse 32? They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. His message had authority. What an interesting description of Jesus's teaching. I think we can speculate maybe a little here about what it was about Jesus' teaching uh, that made them think this. Uh, but, I mean, but let's just be real a little bit. I mean, we, you want to know what was different. We at least get to know maybe even more so than they do. Jesus wasn't just teaching with authority. We know that now. Jesus is authority. He, he already had authority. He wasn't just using authority. He was authority. He was the real deal. Uh, Justin Martyr, the early church father, said this, said of Jesus, his word was power from God. Thus says the Lord is typical of the Old Testament, but Jesus's characteristic expression is truly, truly, I say to you. So he, Jesus wasn't just uh, quoting uh, rabbis. He, wasn't, uh, he was verifying his own witness. He wasn't trying to impress. No, he just opened the scroll and talked and they were in. When we uh, planted Redeemer many years ago, uh, Paul Helbig was a, a, a good friend and was such a helpful, uh, it was so instrumental in us getting started as a church and served as one of our teaching pastors in the early days. And so, several of us were taking turns preaching. Some of, some of you here probably know Paul. Uh, he's, just, I hope that just brings a smile to your face to think about Paul. Um, and as Paul talked about uh, what a church really needed to thrive and to grow and what a preacher needed, he would talk about the person preaching and in his very New York, Paul was from New York, in his very New York sort of way, uh, he would say, the preacher's got to have that juice. He got to have that juice. And I mean, I'm sure I didn't do that justice. Uh, But (laughs) the religious leaders in Israel, they didn't have that juice. They were spiritually dead and, and, and they were not alive with the spirit in their teaching. Oh, but Jesus, Jesus had the juice. He made the Hebrew scriptures come to life. Why? Because he, he, he brought the very realities that the scripture spoke of. He brought them into existence. He was the author of it. In Nazareth, Jesus had said, these scriptures that I'm reading from Isaiah, they're about me. What preacher has ever been able to say that? To look at the Old Testament and go, yeah, that part, that's about me. If you have someone that says that, run away. <laughs> Don't listen to them. Uh, 
There is only one true and supreme authoritative set of vocal cords in the universe. And they belong to Jesus of Nazareth. And oh man, I, I just, I, I can't even, I bet it was amazing to hear. But more than just hearing, it had to be something more than just the experience of the hearing. I mean, a few verses into his hometown, speaking to them. Remember that last, from last week. Well, what are they saying? They're saying, oh, that's cute. That's Joseph's little boy up there. That's pretty neat. Uh, but five minutes later, uh, maybe more than five minutes, but after his teaching, right, what do they do? He stepped on their toes a little bit. He called their pride out and they want to kill him. They're ready to kill him. And so now here, 20 miles away, he's walked 20 miles away to this little sea town. He's teaching them, but this time, by God's grace, they're blown away. But what are they blown away by? That his message had authority. And when someone, something has authority, that means it sits above its hearers, exerting power over those beneath it. In Nazareth, the listeners, they, they wanted Jesus for what he could do for them. They wanted to rule over Christ's words. They wanted to be in charge. But now in Capernaum, they were astonished. Why? Because they knew that what he was teaching had to rule over them. He was speaking unshakable truth. And it was authoritative over them. You see, there's a difference between the words of Joseph's boy and the word of God. And isn't this the same sort of question we face as we encounter the words of Christ? Am I interested in the word of God so far as it makes my life better? So long as it brings peaceful relationships within my family, so long as it's a good recipe book for uh, my self-improvement project? Or is his word the governing force in my life no matter what he commands? A disciple of Jesus no longer sits as judge and jury over the goodness of the words of Christ. Oh, I like this part. That was helpful. Uh, but not so much that part. I don't really care about that part. What he says there about caring for the poor, not, that's not really my ministry. Um, I, I like this. This is really good. No, but not this part. I, he can't speak into that. I disagree with him here. He can't, he can't speak to this part of my life. He can't speak to my sexuality. This is, this, is how, this is not the posture of a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Jesus falls before the authoritative word of Jesus. And the disciple says, your words are life to me. Where else would I go? I need your words like a mirror to show me my sin, to remind me that I'm not God and to point me back again to the truth, to life, to the one who rules over all of creation, to the one who even rules over me. So not only do we see here the content of Christ's authority and his word, number two, we see the realm of his authority. In verse 33, we read in the, in the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit. Now, as we proceed through Luke, uh, we're gonna see a heightened amount of demonic activity. This is gonna happen uh, again and again. And, and, and I think it's just because Jesus is on the scene. Uh, don't be alarmed by all of this. Jesus doesn't seem to be alarmed, but it seems that they are active 
Because the Son of God is here. True light is on the scene and darkness doesn't like it. They're stirred up and the demons are in meltdown mode. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and they know it. Now, now remember, Luke had just told us that this was on the Sabbath. So we don't know the exact reason uh, why this man is in the synagogue. Uh, it could simply be that the demon was aware of Jesus and he was crashing the party. That could be. Um, or maybe, uh, maybe this was a Jewish worshiper. And even this worshiper's pursuit of religious activity was his way of trying to shake what had tormented him for so long. Maybe he heard the teachings of this man named Jesus and he knew, you know what, I'm in trouble, but I've heard that this guy has authority. I've heard this guy's message is powerful, so I'm gonna go. E either way, however he got there, it's not the sort of thing you expect to see at the synagogue. Uh, but, but it's a good reminder that the enemy doesn't just work in drug dens and in dark alleys. No, he, he brings confusion and condemnation to the vulnerable, even to those trying to find freedom, even to those amongst God's people. And so here we are. Uh, so whether this man was here because he knew Je what Jesus was capable of, either way, the demonic spirit was aware. Check out what he says uh, here at the end of 33. He cries out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now we're gonna see in these interactions a couple of interesting things that, that I think are our common themes. Um, and we see a couple of them here. Number one, uh, that first, the demons know exactly who Jesus is and they're terrified. In fact, I think it's safe to say that outside of uh, the angels who speak in the Gospel of Luke and a couple other exceptions uh, of people who have insight into God, uh, the demons give some of the best and most clear professions of faith in, in the Gospel. They, they, they most clearly profess uh, uh, who Jesus really is. Uh, listen to what they, they call him. I know who you are, the Holy Son of God. This is messianic language. In a few verses, more demons show up and they're gonna say, you're the son of God. And then in verse 41, Luke tells us that they knew he was the Messiah. So in, in this case, you don't get to say this very often, listen to the demons. They're, they're good on their theology. They've got, some, they've got some good theology here. Why? Because they're demons and they've been around for a while. They're in the theology textbooks. Uh, this isn't the first time they've heard of Jesus. But this isn't some sort of dualistic face-off. Good versus evil. Um, equal but opposite forces coming together. No. James says even the demons believe and they what? Now, not worship, right? Not get excited. No, they shudder. They know true things, but their knowledge, this is not truly a profession of faith. They don't, their, their knowledge is not accompanied by faith or by adoration. No, they're afraid. They're in survival mode. And they know that they're, they only exist by the permission of Jesus. They know that he could crush them in an instant and that one day he will. So this isn't fight or flight here. This is beg or be dead. Um, this is it for them. So first, they know who he is. But second, Jesus shuts them up. Look at verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him. 
And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. I, I love here that there's no, like, this, there's no show here. It's just words, just the words of Jesus. No spell, uh, no magic uh, incantation, no, just his words, get out and shut up. And they obey, right? They obey. He's like an old man when the TV commercials come on, right? He mutes them. Like, it's it. They're not gonna say anything. Be silent. I've been doing that lately and I'm thinking it's happening. Uh, You guys aren't gonna speak for me, he's saying. John the Baptist already prepared the way. I don't need you to do that. So he says, shut up. Sorry, parents. Kids don't repeat that. Be silent. Verse 41, when more demons show up, Luke just says he won't allow them. He won't allow them to speak. I'm not gonna allow you to talk. Thank you. Just like little puppies on his leash. Demons want to blurt out all the stuff. They wanna just say it. Uh, They can't help themselves, can they? Uh, They're like... Stephanie Tanner in Full House, I've been watching this lately. Uh, they're like, Stephanie Tanner, she, she knows that DJ's throwing a surprise party for Kimmy Gibbler, but she just, when Kimmy shows up, Stephanie just goes, you have a surprise party. They just, she just wants to say it. Demons just want to say, here's, here's what's happening. No secrets. But Jesus goes, not yet. Not yet. This is my surprise. And, and the party's not here yet. It's not time for the big reveal. So shut it. I've got to do some more stuff. Jesus knew that if the word got out about someone who was claiming to be uh, the Messiah, being called the Son of God, who's healing people, uh, both, both excitement and opposition would build very quickly. And, and so he's, he's slowing the roll. And it's amaz- what's amazing in all this too is that the demons, the demons are more clearly articulating who Jesus is than even his own disciples um, and and even, even than what they'll be able to articulate for a while. But, but, just, but just wait. It's not time yet, but just wait. It's going to be time. There will be a time later in Luke when Jesus won't operate in incognito mode anymore. He will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds will shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he won't look at them and say, stop it. No, he will allow them. And when he rides into town, he'll flip over tables and he'll cleanse his father's house from being desecrated. And he will begin to preach where? Right there in the temple. The undercover act is gonna go away eventually. And when it does, you can count on it. The leaders are ready to pounce and they they want him silenced. They want him killed. But not yet, not now. Before he parades in, before he uh, turns over tables, he's going to show hurting people in Galilee what the authoritative Lord of all can really do for them. And he's going to exert power, but he's gonna exert it like a kind shepherd over hurting sheep. He's gonna rescue them like a shepherd from demons and from pain. His words have power power over darkness, power to rescue. So shut up, demons. I I want people to see something is what he's saying. Look at verse 36. Amazement came over them all and they were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power and they come out. 
these people are seeing it. Jesus' authority is not limited to just what he says in the synagogue. No, he rules with supernatural power. Even Satan and demons are subject to him. No evil force isn't cowering at his word. And so for you, are, are, are you here today and experiencing oppression? Do you feel tormented? Like there's something no one's been able to free you from. Maybe it's the demonic power of an addiction. Maybe it's other forces of evil, demonic powers that you feel like are oppressing you, keeping you in darkness, shielding you from real hope, from real deliverance and freedom. Make no mistake, the prince of the power of the air, our enemy, he has not retired. But Jesus has authority over him, over the demonic realm, so you can turn to him. Even today, if that's you, you can turn to him and you can experience freedom. We, we want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. We want to speak truth to you and Jesus will set you free. So we can see the content of his authority and we see the realm in which he has authority. But how concrete does this really get? How far does this really go? Number three, we see the extent of his authority. In verse 38, after he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked him about her. And so we're now stepping into the home of the apostle Peter, who will, who will soon, be called, who soon be called Peter. Um, and as Luke, the doctor, as he's telling the story, uh, in some of the other gospel accounts, they don't mention that this is a high fever, but Luke's the doctor, so he gives us a little more information. Um, so he's saying, this is no common cold. This is serious. Um, and, and in the ancient Near East, a fever would have been a problem. And now Jesus of Nazareth speaks to a fever. Look at verse 39. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. <laughs> Come on, Jesus! Like this is this is new. To, like this is new to these people. Like they, you've seen like passion plays. They haven't seen a passion play. You've seen like the chosen or something. They've never. They have no idea what's happening. They they just saw Jesus speak to a demon, and, and maybe they were some of the people who had seen this were like, okay. He's a spiritual leader. He's doing like spiritual stuff. Um, that's a little wild and crazy, a little hard to relate to. Uh, but in a world where an infectious fever could mean death, Jesus stands right next to this sick woman and tells the fever, you're done. Stop it. And a fever's not a living person. A fever is, is, doesn't have ears. Uh, a, a fever doesn't have a will. Uh, but Jesus looks into someone's body and says, I fixed it. And I, he, he fixed it like not in slow motion. He didn't like turn on the vaporizer and you know, pour the essential oils in and just say, hey, I'll come back in three days. Let me know how it goes. No, it's done. And what does it say that she did? She got up immediately, immediately and began to serve them. 
This is a legit turnaround. She's immediately up serving her house guests. She's probably going, hey, I would have cleaned up, but I had a fever. Um, sorry, let me get all this straightened up. What, what a time to be alive. And I, I don't know how the family reacted. I can only imagine. But make no mistake, these two miracles begin to open the floodgates. And we read in verse 40 that the people begin to come. It says in verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid hands on each one of them, he healed them. So remember, it was the Sabbath. This is what Luke tells us earlier. So they, like, like good Jews, they wait. They're, they're probably waiting at their doorstep till the sun goes down and they go, okay, we're off, off, off to Jesus. And, and it wasn't just fevers now. All kinds of diseases is what we're told he healed. And he didn't just pick through and find the easy ones. Oh yeah, yeah, I got that one. I know that one. No, it wasn't, oh man, I don't know the spell for blindness. No, he healed them all. He healed them all. How did he do it? He laid his hands on them. He didn't have any, there was no, he was the medicine. Then this wasn't a show. Uh, this wasn't the, you know, the traveling healer, healer that comes to town and, and rolls out and it's like, man, that was so awesome. That little boy got healed. Where's that little boy? You know what? I think he traveled into town with the, with the crew. He might be part of the thing. Um, no, this was not that. He healed all of them. All of them. This is no counterfeit. And our temptation throughout Luke's gospel is going to be for us to go, yep, there it is. I got it. Sure. Another healing. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's great. I like to see healings. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't have, don't read it in that dull of a fashion. This is crazy. Like Jesus is changing the lives of a lot of really sick people, some who had probably suffered their whole life. And, and so there's an, an uproar. And it's not just because they're bored and they didn't have technology and, you know, they, if, they, if you know, Jesus was healing and they had Netflix, they'd probably, no. They, they were, this, this was amazing. You should be amazed. You would be amazed. We should be captivated by this. It's unbelievable. And the story kind of becomes, many, many have pointed to this story as a pattern for the unfolding ministry and the, the miracles that Jesus is going to continue to do. He will demonstrate his power over the spiritual realm, over demons or sin, and then his healing power will also extend to the physical bodies of those who suffer. We're gonna see this exact same thing in a couple of weeks when Jesus looks at a paralyzed man and he says, your sins are forgiven. And what do the skeptics say to that? Sure, yeah, you don't have power to forgive sins. Um, so sure, you can say you forgave his sins. Um, so what does the Jesus then say? Well, then get up and walk. M maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're skeptical of your own of your own. Uh, wickedness, and you go, man, Jesus couldn't do that. I don't think Jesus could really forgive me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I've been for so long against him. This is what he can do for you. Look at Jesus. He can speak down to the cells of a person. If he can do that, he can forgive your sins. 
Or maybe you're, you're hesitant the other direction. You're hesitant to pray for healing. Why would Jesus even care about my little malady? There's plenty of problems in the world. There's stuff going on with, with Russia. And I, I don't, like, he, Jesus has plenty to worry about. Why would he care about my pain, my sickness? Notice, Jesus doesn't despise anyone who has come. He has compassion on all of them. In the book of James, he gives this instruction to those who are sick. He says, in, in James chapter five, James says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Jesus cares about your sickness and he calls you to pray. That's not unspiritual, it is very spiritual. Pray, go to him. The elders love doing this. We love praying for people in our church. It's, we got to do this just recently where we went and, and were able to pray over someone and anoint them with oil like James talks about. And it's one of our favorite kinds of meetings to have. It's way better than like a regular meeting just to pray for the sick. Jesus cares about you. His, his sovereign authority is, is over your physical body and he cares for you. So we've seen the extent of his authority, but let's look lastly at number four, the purpose of his authority. Such a, this is such a wild scene. Uh, all the sick and tormented in Capernaum coming out, um, and they're coming out in the dark. If we catch that, it's after the sun's down. They're coming out in the dark. And uh, I, I just, what are we to make of this scene? What a crazy scene. Um, I, think, I think this is what we're to catch. If you remember in our text last week, just before this, Jesus had just stood up in Nazareth and, and said, the scriptures from Isaiah about the Messiah and what he will do, he said, those are about me. And so now here we are, one scene later, and the very scriptures that he read are bursting up like a pop-up book. I mean, they're just coming to life right in front of them. What did Jesus say? He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And then he said this, to do what? To bring recovery of sight to the blind? Check. To preach good news to the poor? Check. And to set free the oppressed? Check. Here is Jesus preaching, healing, and setting free. Jesus called a shot. He said, this is what the scriptures say that the Messiah will do. I am the Messiah and the scriptures speak of me. So now watch me. Won't I do it? Make no mistake, this is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one from God. Why is Jesus doing these things? To show that he is the authority from God in the flesh, the Messiah of God. And what is he proclaiming to them, it says? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is to say, there's more. There's more coming. 
He says, there's a whole kingdom like this on the way. And this is why Jesus can't just stay in Capernaum uh, like the people want him to. They want him to stay. Of course they want him to stay. Who, why wouldn't they? They're like Mother Gothel that found Rapunzel and they want to hold on to her for her hair, right? But he can't stay. He says, that's not what I was here for. Listen to Jesus in, in verse 43. He says, but he said to them, it's necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. More people need to know. More people need to hear about the kingdom that I'm bringing. It's not fully here yet, but it's coming. And more people than you guys need to hear it, he's saying. And so that's what he'll do. After, after Capernaum, he, he's going to go throughout Galilee to many more cities. And Jesus tells those people about the coming kingdom. And in fact, it's the same good news that continues to go forth. It's the same news that comes to you today. And maybe, maybe this is the news that you need to hear today. That Satan and his demons will not oppress you forever. That you may feel beaten down and frustrated. That you may feel like you're living in enemy territory. But one day, Jesus is going to snap the neck of the oppressor. And in his kingdom, there will be liberty for captives. Your hunched back will be straightened. Your heavy heart lifted up. Oh, but wait, there's, there's even more than that. In that kingdom, sickness will not have the final say. Physical pain, the physical pain that, that has, has been a cruel master in your life, that has ruled over you, kind of controlling your mood, your energy, your enthusiasm for life. And physical pain can be such a devastating master. But the good news of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom is that sickness is really no master at all. Whether an illness or a physical limitation that you've had since birth, whether a disease that just keeps coming back, whether a chronic issue of, of pain that you, you just can't escape from, all of these will one day be laid to rest beneath the boot heel of your savior. Why? Because that's what his kingdom is gonna be like. That's what he came to bring. That's why he rose from the dead. You see, Jesus' ministry on earth was so brief. And so, so why use that time? Why would he use that time here to exert authority over sickness and over demons? Why not just die for sin and be done with it? And I think it's because sickness and demons, these are the fruit that sprung up out of the ground in a broken world, broken by sin. And if Jesus is going to make all things new by his death and resurrection, then for a short time while walking on the earth, he gave us just a little sneak peek. This is what my kingdom will be like. When death is defeated, when there will be no more tears, no more sickness, the presence of evil and pain will be gone and dead. You see, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. He didn't defeat death simply to redeem hearts and defeat sin. 
No, the, the physical earth itself, our broken world and broken bodies, they will be made new. And he's saying, this is the kingdom that I'm bringing. I will fix it all. His display of power here is a foretaste that he's gonna destroy all sickness and sin forever. We read about this longing that we have in Romans chapter eight, uh, when Paul talks about uh, how we long for that sort of complete healing. He says in Romans eight, starting in verse 21, that creation itself will also be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves have the spirit as first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. He's gonna make it all new. But for the redemption to come, first he had to suffer. In order to fully cast out demonic forces and defeat evil, he had to bear your evil. He had to take on your selfishness, your hatred. He had to take your sin upon himself and to fully restore sick and broken bodies. What did he have to do? He had to have his body broken. To truly overturn the curse of the fallen world, first, he had to become a curse for you. For it's written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But guess what? He did it. Only he could do it. Only he could bear your sin. Only he could suffer and offer you new life. Only he could bring a new heaven and a new earth with him. Why? Because he is alone, the authoritative one. There's no one else like him. There's no one like Jesus. Jesus is the authority of heaven. There's no other savior, no one else that could stand in your place. Look at what Jesus prayed in John 17 as, he was, as his crucifixion was drawing near. He looked to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. He's talking about his death and resurrection. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus has the authority of heaven. And only Jesus is so gracious that he would take the authority of heaven and he would use it for you. He would use his authority to save you. That was his purpose. If, if you've never trusted Jesus, he did that for you. He used the authority of the universe for you. You can trust him. We, we live in an age where, where trust and authority is declining, right? Whether it's governments or churches or pastors or police or whatever it is, there's, there's a decline in that sort of trust in our culture. I'm not saying it's a good thing, just commenting on it, right? Why? Why, why is it hard for people to trust? I, I think it's because we've been exposed to and seen so many abuses of trust. 
abuses of authority. But guess what? Jesus, with all the authority that there is, all the authority of heaven, he used his power for you. Not for himself, but for you. So that you might have life. So that he might give you his life. That's unbelievable. And beyond that, even now, if you're in him, if you have his life, by his authority, he sends you out. He says, all authority has been given to me, and so now I'm sending you. And, and just like Jesus went to all the other cities, he's saying, I'm sending you to the other cities. My disciples are gonna go out to other cities, and they're gonna tell people about this offer. They're gonna, t- they're gonna offer the life of Christ for, t- to these other people, to these other cities. And what is he gonna do when we go and do that mission? He says, oh, I'll be with you. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is trustworthy. You can trust him. You can trust him. He used all of the authority of heaven to save you. So you can ask him for help because he cares. You can ask him for healing. He's able. And even when healing doesn't come, you can submit to his authority because he rules over it all. And then you can eagerly join with the rest of creation as we wait eagerly for the adoption that's ours in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that we can be so caught up in our own pain and our own suffering or sorrow or just in our own things and we can lose sight of your grand rule over all of it. That you would work even in our suffering. And so Father, today I I pray that that you would compel us, that you would make us a group of people who bring our needs to you, the only one who can save bring our sin to you, the only one who can forgive, that we bring our, 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 our struggles and our, our emotional pain to you. You're the only one who has suffered and knows and can identify with us, that we bring our physical maladies and our sicknesses to you because you're the only one who can heal. But Father, beyond that, would you give us a trust in you that supersedes it all? that no matter what you do, you're good and that we can long for the day that we'll be with you because that will be amazing. And that the eternal glory outweighs all of this momentary affliction. So would you help us today? Would you, would you draw us to Jesus? We ask this in his name, amen.